You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined back in studio by Billy Galenko. How you doing, Billy? Very well. I answered very quickly there because my fiance said I had too long of a pause the last time you asked me how I was doing. Very fast. <laughs> oh, you're, I'll, I'll give you the, uh, I mean, you can have the opportunity to think about it a little bit. I know a new year, uh, emotions <laughs> can be complicated to sort through. Yeah, no, I'm going to shout out to her. I'm very speedy. But no, things are <laughs> things are going very well. I had a, a nice long weekend here. I have a couple couple stories from last weekend that I can share. As well as we have a, a great guest, a returning guest, but friend of the program, but renowned sommelier and just wine guru, Raj Parr today. I'm excited for that. Yeah, Raj is, I think he's been called the sommelier sommelier. So he's like the psalm for the wine industry. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and now turned like winemaker and farmer and um, all kinds of other things. Yeah, vin- but Vineron, if you will. That's, that's right. The definition of that word. Yeah, the wine grower. Um, yeah, highly accomplished though. Ran uh, the wine program for Michael Mina's restaurants, open wineries in Oregon, all around the Central Coast. So uh, it'll be good to catch back up with him. Yep. Also famous author, or not, well, famous in the wine industry author too, <laughs> with the most recent thing being the Somebody's Atlas to Taste, I think is the name. Mm-hmm. I always just call it the, yeah, somebody's. But yeah, I had a couple, two interesting stories from this weekend. First, I went. We went down to Palm Springs for one day. I had never been. People really said, you go to do nothing there. Like basically you sit by the pool. Obviously it's winter. So it wasn't hot enough for the pool, but it was still nice. But we found, I was searching for basically the best wine bar there. It turns out not a lot of options right now in Palm Springs, except we found this place called Canopy Wine Lounge. Went in there mainly because I saw a terracotta egg, like a tank for winemaking through the window. And I was like, maybe Mm -hmm. this is either a really expensive decoration or they're making wine in there. So we had to go check it out. (laughs) So we did. Turns out they are making wine in there. I think it was Rosé Zinfandel that they're making right now. So that's pretty cool. But the interesting part to me, and I ended up actually speaking more with the guys who are running it and help opening it. First, like their wine list was basically three or four different producers made up like 75% of the list. And I was confused. But they had some really neat champagne. But the producers that they had were from like Napa, Sonoma. They had some Australian wines and Argentina. And it turns out the owners of the bar, those are their wineries. And they're actually like, they're really into making quality wines from these different regions. And the the wines, we we got to taste a wide range of them, were actually very, very good. Later, we, we started chatting more with our server. And it turns out the two guys who are managing it right now on the ground are both hoping to apply to the master's program, a master of wine program this year, just like me. So we ended up chatting and we end up now talking about what they were looking for to build out this wine list in the future. He was talking about maybe even having like really high end by the glass wines like DRC and like by the glass or a flight of first growth wines. So I thought that was really fascinating. So we actually are potentially going to have these guys on the podcast. I'm working on it as we speak. Nice. Yeah, I just looked up the, I see the egg in these pictures here on the website. But so they're serving like, I don't know how to say it, 
they're, they're serving like natural wines and sparkling wines right now, but then they're going to serve like Bordeaux first growths. Is that most, most that all thing? of these are just traditionally made wines from like Napa, oh, okay. Mendoza and Australia. Mm-hmm. One thing that they actually told me I thought was really interesting and I had to go back and read more is the server was like our Australian producer actually a couple every so often her semillon grapes will just come out red <laughs> or like pink. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> are, you, are you sure? <laughs> so I was like, we're talking about semillon, right? And if you think about it, in the grand scheme of wine, it's not that crazy because that's how Pinot Noir came about. Um, you know, there's Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Noir. They're all technically the same grapes. They're just mutations. It's not unheard of for a wine, a grape to change color. So I came home, opened up my big book of wines, and read that basically that does it has happened before, but the main documented case there was in South Africa. And it was like actually like something they call Semillon Rouge, and they actually like took uh-huh. cuttings and, and replanted it. It's basically not planted anymore because it wasn't commercially viable. Come it was no, good. Century. no, basically the South African wine business has had like peaks and valleys. And I think it, I can't remember exactly when it was. I think it was here. I have it right here. The, uh, the end of the 19, or I guess early 1900s when, ah, screw it. It was the last time where they had like a dip. It basically, when they replanted everything and they were focused on either different types of quality, different styles. They just pulled them all up and planted things that they thought people elsewhere would want to drink more. So that was the the style. So Semillon Rouge, if you kept going with that, would it just keep getting darker, I wonder? I don't think I don't think necessarily. I think you have a mutation once and if you take a cutting, then uh-huh. in theory it could be the like that. But the, what I found interesting is it wasn't like it was just certain it was the same vines, just different years. Certain climactic conditions hmm. would call them turn red. I have not heard of that before. I mean, it makes more sense in South Africa where if it happens early, these are early viticulture days and you take a cutting and go. So I've never heard of a, a thing just switching back with that many. Like you might have a weird bunch here or there, but I don't know. I thought that was interesting. But either way, we might have these guys on the podcast working on that, but I'd love to hear or share with you guys different journeys to the master of wine program and how we're all going to the same place but also maybe hearing more about their vision for for bringing fine wine to palm springs yeah i mean it's cool to hear about different like projects like that because i mean i was looking at pictures on their website and there's literally not a single place that looks like this within 500 miles of where i live it's cool to hear about that i also thought palm springs was in florida which it probably is but (laughs) i guess it's in california too yeah there's probably one all over the probably one in Arizona. Yeah. But then, so I have another quasi interesting story. I hope everybody thinks it's interesting. Do you remember when I was accidentally sending all my Ridge Club allocations to my old address? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for it's those who don't remember it, weren't they? Yeah. For those who don't remember, yeah. I was waiting for my Montebello, like Ombre Futures release, which you wait two to three years to get those. So as in order to be eligible for those, I had to sign up for their estate wine program. So the 18 and the 19 had come to my old address when they were released, but I had moved and I had completely forgotten about them because I was just waiting for the Montebello. Then one day you were like, oh, the Montebello is released of the, the vintage I have. I can't remember which one it is. And I was like, I still haven't received it. So I looked into it. They told me that it had been received. So I emailed the guy and he was like, 
no, it's like, I, I don't know. It was some weird kind of back and forth. At first he denied it. I followed up and it was just like, yeah, I have these emails. And he's, oh, you mean these wines? And he's, it, it had my name on it. It was just sent to me. I didn't realize it was somebody else's wines. And I was like, no, <laughs> they're, they're definitely mine. <laughs> the way I got them back, Mayi suggested, my fiance suggested that I tell him I'm disappointed in him and that I would like my wines back. And that actually worked. The guy got, he sent a whole long email about how I shouldn't be disappointed in him. And <laughs> we agreed to do a swap. So not a swap. He would just put them outside and I would come collect them one morning. So I did. And so far, everything I've had from that is intact. But then I pulled out a bottle of the 2019 Cabernet Estate mm -hmm. to share with everybody. And I noticed there was like some wine at the top. There was a little hole in the top of the foil. And I looked at the other ones. I was like, that's not there. And there was like some red coming out. And uh -huh. I was like, did this guy corb in this bottle? But it yeah. still looked still looked full. So I'm not sure how wine, because I had seen wine. So when I, I, I opened it up, wine had started coming up the sides, but not all the way through. And I couldn't find evidence of the like, Corbin going all the way through. So I think he mm. like might have literally been halfway through Corbin this when I emailed him and he like saw it. And he's like, fuck, and he just, or excuse my language. <laughs> oh, crap. And then he stopped. <laughs> so I don't know. But we opened the Probably. bottle. We had. There's nothing, nothing like a little bit of shame to stop you mid Corbin. I know, and I think he really was. Like, I saw evidence, and he was just like, clearly felt bad about himself for having. I would drink not. That. I would not drink something that someone else gave me that looked like it had a needle stuck in it, though. So, that's true. That's true. Well, I didn't think about. Oh, I served. I served it to guests. Perfect. But, but no, I opened it. It didn't look like. I, I know what it looks like when the corving goes all the way through. Yeah. It didn't. I think he might have just barely started. I smelled the wine. It smelled fine, and it tasted fine. So that was great. We got to share it with everybody, and. I was actually sharing it with people from Northern California who may use friends. They can basically see Ridge or at least where they grew up and where they live now. You can see almost Montebello, like the hill. And then hmm. none of them have ever heard of Ridge at all. And I was wow. like, yeah. So I had to not only explain to them that it was a good wine, but try to emphasize, like, I tell everybody, it's at least in American sommeliers, like top five wines in America, if not top three. Um, yeah. If not, Number and they're one. like, oh, wow. And then they're still skeptical. They're like, sure, sure. And then they had, yeah. like, this is really good wine. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, so it was. Yeah, I think like top, top 10 winery in the world the last three or four years from wine advocate or wine enthusiast, whoever puts it together. Not that exactly. no, that matters, but <laughs> yeah, no. Well, so anyways, that was, I got to tell, I got to relive the story and my experience with the guy. He makes bread while he's not <laughs> stealing people's wine, but. Anyway, it, it worked out well, and hopefully we'll have the, the Ridge guys on sometimes, too. That's something we're, we're trying to work on across yeah. there. Ridge, if you're listening, get back to us, and we'll set something up. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, for today, we have Raj, which is, like I said, friend of the pod now, second time, which is huge. Sommelier, sommelier, been all around the wine industry, has, I mean, in terms of his palate regarded as having one of the best palates in the industry in terms of tasting wine. And that's trans translated well to his winemaking, I think. And yeah, like in music, you talk about someone having perfect pitch. I think uh, Raj's reputation is that that's what he has for wine. Yep. And along with that, just like we talked about with Matt Kainer in the last episode, 
he has a real appreciation for kind of the the history and the of wine and the expression of place. So we talk in this episode about a, a Palomino that he makes from basically, I think it's close to 100-year-old vines out in Rancho Cucamonga. So historical vines. He brings an actual cask over from Spain, from Sherry or Jerez, Sherry, and makes like a kind of quasi Sherry style wine from that. And I think that's like super cool. It's like using all of his his experience, his appreciation for wine and really manifesting it in the wine itself. So I think that's a cool story. And we get to hear his point of view on how it's been yeah. farming in, in California, other wines. It was a it was a great conversation. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. I hope it gets you more excited about Yes, some of these small pro- projects. I mean, obviously, Raj has large projects too. Like you think about Sandy and Evening La- Evening Land, but working on a small project, getting behind the scenes look on. Phelan Farms is the name. Phelan yeah. Farms. Yep, that's it's right. Throughout and the you name. can go back. You can go back and listen to our episode last time we had Raj on, and definitely can hear some differences about how they've evolved and they're getting ready to put in forty new acres of vineyard. To yeah, yeah, super cool. And the one more, one more is the Scythian too. That's the one he collabs with right. Abe Schoner and LA River Wine Company. That's for those in California, you might be able to find those. Phelan Farms, I think, is a little bit wider spread, especially in some hospitality situations too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, good. <laughs> those are great. Uh, I'm glad you remind you uh, brought back brought the story about the Montebello wines being delivered back up. That's funny. Think about that. <laughs> But now here's our interview with Raj Parr. Hey Raj, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, now second time on, which means you're officially a friend of the pod, which <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a good association for you or not, but I'm um, excited to have you back and uh, look forward to talking about last year as well as what's on your mind. For you said the next five years two, or two to five years, because you, you're yeah. thinking like a farmer now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's it, anything you do in in agriculture is it's the current year is just what you have to do, and but you have to pay attention to the next two three years to any change you make in planting or pruning or varietal grafting, whatever the case may be. It's mm-hmm. So what are the, like, when you look back, highlights on the 2023 vintage, what first things come to mind from like a winemaker's perspective? And then yeah. we can talk about the vineyard a little bit. Well, so for the, in winemaking was very simple. You don't do that much different, different things, but it was pretty, pretty good in the cellar. It was pretty easy fermentation. Everything was, we make the wines without any, any adding anything. So it was a fairly easy Nothing, nothing went haywire, touch wood so far, everything's been okay. But on the flip side, the, in the vineyard of my short farming career, it's definitely the most challenging a season I've ever seen. We didn't have, literally, I don't know if I even had one day of humidity less than 60% here in Cambria. Hmm. Which is very hard to organic for organic farming, especially on, on the coast. It's just mildew pressure never slowed down. We had we started with downy mildew during flowering, so we lost probably thirty percent right there. And then to powdery mildew, we lost another thirty some percent. So, oh wow, and, uh, of what a normal vintage would be. So we had a very very small yield. So. 
yeah, it was all in all, it was it was difficult in in some of the vineyards, but but you know, we we, we bought some grapes and we worked with some other vineyards in drier places and kind of in the in the county here in in San Luis Obispo and kind of like that's what we have to have. We have a one we have Fairland Farm, and then we also have uh, Bridge Wines, which is the part of the which is the the Negos buy grapes from organic vineyards and make the wine the same way. So we have to have that balance in case we have a vintage like 23, the yields are very, very low. 22 was also very low because of the drought and, and the very cool and wet spring we had here. But, mm-hmm. but last year, we had plenty of rain. So if all goes well, hopefully with lots of rain and we had a we had some sunshine, enough sunshine in, in the summer, so we should be should be good this year for flowering. We'll see. You just you always have to hope for the best because yeah. if you go go down the negative path, then you can you always think of the worst <laughs> trash day positives. Optimism is a good way to make wine. <laughs> uh, the the our listeners our listeners who have been with us for a while probably heard your first episode and got an introduction to you that way. Obviously, folks can go back and listen to that, but why don't you just provide, tell folks here your couple of projects, what they are right now, and the main varieties that you're growing before so we keep the, going. So we have basically two parallel projects happening here. One is in Cambria. It's called Phelan Farm, and we have mostly Jura and Savoie varieties we have here, and that's very coastal, and everything is picked in October, and and it's a regenerative farm. We have 11.2 acres here. We just expanded, added another 23 acres last August of, of planted vineyards. And then we'll add another seven and a half acres of vines I'm planting this year in 24. So it's, it's, it's now going to be a nice size estate. And then we have the wines we make from down south in Cucamonga. And that's called Scythian Wine Company. And those are the white is Palomino. And then the red is the field blends of Zinfandel, Alicante, Mission, Grenache. And so we make a few wines from very old vineyards in California. Many of them planted in the, in the early 1900s and one going back to 1896. So that's, that's, those are all East of Los Angeles. Yeah. But that's those are two, two wine projects focusing on these days. Yeah, not. I think we mentioned it last time, but not many people know that the first real commercial vineyard in California was was out there in Rancho Cucamonga. Aside from wines growing around missions and people just doing it for themselves, so that's I love that. I almost bought a hat this weekend that had just said Rancho Cucamonga, and then it had just like a grape, a bunch of grapes on it, and I was like, nobody will get this, but um, it's so cool. So. Yeah, no, no, true. It's it's uh, a lot of the vineyards there. Of course, we are there's housing complexes and and factories and different things encroaching into the vineyard. So uh, I try my best to support what we can, the grapes we can buy, and and make sure that these old vineyards still stay stay in the ground and it's not a housing complex. So when 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 you were planting your new vineyards, are you taking cuttings from your current? vineyard or are you bringing in new varieties or just cuttings of the same varieties from elsewhere no we, we we use a lot of the cuttings we have already from 
in our own nursery and kind of propagate them. Yeah, so we use. Yes, uh, I'm buying some, and then I also have some which we use ourselves. We have already. Yeah, cool. And then I know we briefly touched on it before we got on, but can you talk a little bit about your the Palomino you're making and its style, and also the fact that it's it's growing floor just like over yeah. in Jerez. So we have three different Palominos they are bottling this year. The first one is going to be the Cucamonga Revolution, which is the kind of the fresh style. We bottle that in the spring, and that's more kind of you know uh, more kind of crisp and Palomino is not a high acid variety, but it's more on the fresh style. And then we have one we age on the floor for 12 months. That will be bottled in the late summer, July, August. And that will get a natural floor. So as the floor comes, it picks up that kind of aroma of which you relate to that oxidative style of wine. And those are all, all of it is raised in, in sherry casks. I have four 500-liter sherry casks. Uh, it's 100 years old. I got from San Lucar, from, from Jerez, and they are aged in that. And then that'll get bottled in the summer. And then the third version is a sparkling wine, which we, hmm. which we get from, which we make an early pick. And yeah, so it's so, yeah, sparkling wine. We'll, we'll bottle that, discourse that later on this year. So, yeah. Wow. Oh. I guess I have two questions. First one is, do you, so you were saying last time, you think the floor actually came over in the barrels themselves, right? Because that, that yeast, those strains, the four strains or whatever, aren't really native to California, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah. It came from in the barrel because when, you know, I, how ironic it all is because those barrels, which I got from San Lucar, they are American oak. So the wood went from uh, Missouri and it was made in Spain, and then barrels came back a hundred years later with all the microbiology, and then I put Palomino in it from here, which is all wow. from vines hundred years old, so the aging the back in 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 American wood to hundred years old yeah and then the the floor because in San Lucar they have the the floor wines and when I got the barrel, then it depends. Some barrels get the floor, some barrels don't. So it just depends. And also, to to keep the floor, you have to have a special condition. We don't we don't have we use recycled air as a part of. We don't we don't have full full on air conditioning. It is air conditioned, but it's not. We recycle the air because camera is pretty cold, and so we have a floor that we had last year. We. We made the one in LA, so we didn't have floors. So this year, back in Cambria, too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that the one thing, the humidity that caused the mildew, actually is probably better for the floor, or will be. So yeah, that'll be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah. And then the second question was, how similar is the the snappy style of light Palomino that you're releasing early to the base wine that you're making for the sparkling? Are they picked about the same time or a little after uh, each other? Sparkling is made picked. A week before, and then the for the still white is made two weeks after, and then for the for the city and the floor wine is maybe another week after. So separate picks, yeah, yeah. Can can you give just like a one hundred and one on the effect of floor on the end wine and and the either controllability or desirability maybe that too. 
mostly is it, it, it adds this very salty character into the wine. It protects the wine from oxidation. So it gets to one part of, gets to a, like a slightly biscuity o- oxidation and then it'll stop. And then it just basically concentrates the wine and it adds this kind of salty quality to the wine. Mm-hmm. Well, it's mm-hmm. a surface yeast, a natural surface yeast. And yeah, you could, I could keep it for longer if I wanted to, but I, I like it when it's slightly in that biscuity. I don't, I don't want it to be too toasty and like very roasted almonds. I like it just a so little it's bit. Not, it's not something that gets agitated into the wine after it, after it grows, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's because a part of the wine, it really adds that extra dimension in the wine. Because mm-hmm. Palomino is a pretty simple grape as, as, as a variety. It doesn't really have, but as it ages, it does oxidize much faster than some other grapes. So mm-hmm. it de- definitely adds. The elevage is very important in Palomino. If you, if you take a Palomino and if you just make it very clean and sulfur it and make it, you know, fine it, filter it, it just tastes like nothing. Yeah. So the extra dimension definitely comes from aging. So how predictable, like the process that you described, the sherry cask aging and all, and the whole process and some of the organic changes that happen in barrel, how much of that is predictable and you're really trying to come out with something and how much of it is, hey, let's see if we can make this grape taste like something interesting. Yeah, nothing predictable about Palomino. I just, we believe in the vineyard, we believe in the farming and and then we have to let it be its own thing. And I think it's the unpredictable nature of Palomino is what's interesting. I think it gives the wine a, a whole different dimension. Who else is making Palomino in California? Is it several producers? I'm just not as familiar with the variety. Uh, or are you making a meaningful percentage of that wine? Or Yeah, no. The, see, Palomino is mostly grown... Uh, in dry places on sandy soils. So there's not a whole lot of single varietal Palomino left because it also yields quite a bit. So you want to be in an old vineyard where it's controlled and it has the yield to be balanced. And I think, mm-hmm. who else has Palomino? There's some vineyards up in, maybe in Contra Costa and in Lodi a little bit. But what we, from our vineyards, where we, the Lopez Vineyard, where we make it from, there's Lopez Vineyard and Galliano Vineyard. The Gallianos make Palomino. They make sherry there. And then from our group, it's, it's uh, Abe Schoner, LA River Wine Company, uh, Mikey Juni, Scar of the Sea, Herman York. They make wine in Redlands. And, and us. And that's pretty much the, the Palomino we have. There's a little bit of, there's a really good sherry style or sherry, sherry style, phenol style, which is made by, I forgot his name, up in Sonoma. Really, really good. Yeah. I forgot the name of the, name of the wine, but yeah. But there's not a whole lot. It's definitely a category, which is, there's a little bit in other parts of outside, most, most places. Don't really, like in, there's some in South Africa. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of, of, of sherry style wines being made. And dry, dry Palomino is also a new thing. It's also new in Jerez. I was just in 
Spain and I went to Herais and there was not many people making, you know, making like bulk white wine, but not really, really a lot of fine white wine. Yeah, I, I've read that's a thing people are, are testing a little bit more because of the just the volume of grapes that they're growing, but the the popularity of sherry right now, especially some of the the lower value styles aren't selling quite as yeah. well as they once were. I've even seen some skin contact Palomino trying to get a little bit of that character out of skins as well. Before I want to hear all about your Spain drip before moving on to there, are there other I've been meaning to ask you this because I saw you posted. I mean, you always are great about posting other people making great wine as well. Who else in like California, the US are making wines in a style like a low intervention or making interesting varieties that you you might like? I saw you were had some Sandlands the other day, which I'm also oh, a big yeah. fan of. That's uh, Tegan is Tegan is amazing. Tegan, yeah, those, those wines are great. Scar of the Sea, Mikey, Juni making amazing wines here. Outward wines. Another small, small winery here in, in, in the Slow Coast, but making wines from around Slow Coast and, and then from Santa Barbara County, of course, Lo-Fi, Mike Roth, he's, he's been doing oh, this yeah. for a long, long time. He's really, really great, grows grapes and makes wine. And yeah, those, those are the, that's the group I hang out with and we share lots of information and. Travel together and Alice Anderson, Amaviv, and Lydia Sunshine. So Mikey's wife, Gina. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of producers, you know, really trying to grow grapes and make wine. Cause when you grow grapes, you really understand how the wine should be made. Cause usually the variety tells you or behaves in a way in the vineyard where you react to it in the cellar. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that if you focus on regenerative farming or organic farming, and then you, you translate that into low intervention and kind of respectful winemaking, it's, we can use many words, natural, not natural, but that's not, I think the most important part of anything is really the farming aspect of it. And then you're really making honest wine. So you're really showcasing the place, the vineyard, the varietal in the bottle. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we actually just got a, a bottle of Lo-Fi yesterday. It's it's in Whole Foods now. Hard to believe, but good for him. Nice. Or good for them. Yeah, it's nice to see. <laughs> At least here in Silver Lake. But I want it. So now on to your, your Spain trip. You went to, it sounds like you went to Jerez. You went to Galicia. Um, yeah. Where where else? And and yeah, tell us all about your trip. It looked awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was it a was super good trip. Went with Jose Pastor. And so he set up a bunch of, really good producers he works with and some he doesn't work with, but it was a really special trip because you see Jerez and it's really, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a sad place a little bit, a lot of, lot of commercial farming, machine picking, lots of glyphosate use and very little real organic farming, very little. I mean, talking of less than 1%, maybe. So it's pretty, pretty desolate there. Oh, wow. So, so uh, I, I never heard of that. So I was very, I was shocked of how, how really poorly the vineyards have been managed over the last three, four, five decades. And there's some good wines, but, you know, few and far between. Muchala Leclapar being probably the best producer 
of wine we tasted and great, great, great cellar. Hmm. And then from there, we went up north. We went up to Galicia and that was amazing. It was incredible. So we've started off in, in Rise Bajas. I make some Albarino from Romania, not far from here. And I wanted to see the effect of an organic, organic viticulture. And it's very hard. The weather there is very similar to Galicia. We went to Rise Bajas and then we went to, to Ribeiro. And we saw the OG Luis Sancho, which was a great old school producer, and Bernardo Estevez, and, and some other vineyards up in Monterrey and the border of Portugal. Yeah, really incredible place, beautiful granite soils, small vineyards, real vineyard style wines, really fresh, and yeah, really, and the dreads were really good, or varietals I don't know much about. And farming organically in that climate, it's like, I kind of like, they also had lost a lot of their grapes in 23. So we could, yeah, we could cry together a little bit from the the weather we had in 23. But, you know, it's all good. I think we, I learned some stuff, what they do in the off season and some, some ways they prune and kind of ways they uh, fight, fight the mildew. And yeah, so it was, it was really a beautiful place, beautiful people. Amazing seafood. And then Rivera Sacra, of course, I've been there before. That was some of the craziest, steepest vineyards in the world. And I mean, just crazy. You, you couldn't even walk down the vineyards. I mean, I was even, I got some cuttings from, of Mencia from them, from Envinote. And so I went to the vineyard. It was like a half hour hike. Like literally, it was no joke. And they get to the vineyard and they're like, I'm not sure I want to walk into the vineyard because one wrong step and your history going down the river. Yeah, definitely been, was a incredible trip and amazing people. And yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure the food played a part in the hospitality and stuff like that. What, what do what do you take away or if anything, do what, what do you bring back with you when you have experiences in other places and you, you're trying new foods and new wines in a place? How much of that do you bring back and think about when you're putting together your own wines here in the States? Oh, a lot. I mean, it's amazing. When we were right, we had amazing, this, this crab they have, the local crab they have. And when I came back home, we can't get that crab. And I was for, this, for mm-hmm. the whole week, I was eating Dungeness crab. I'm like, that's what we get here. I was really <laughs> happy with that. I love the crab they served us there. And they were like, oh yeah, I like the male version, the female version. I'm like, wow, it's crazy. You know, they're, they're like so that kind of particular about, I was like grateful for having the langoustines and the crab there. And then the aged Galician meat, 60 day. We had a hundred day aged ribeye and stuff like that. That's in the culture. That's, and you, and yeah, definitely, I, I don't need that much meat, but I was definitely really like the man. And eating at people's homes, that was amazing. When, when, when we went to Pedro Guimaro's house and, and his, his mother is cooking us rabbit and this, like what they eat locally and, and, and but they go hunt it. It's not like they're going to a butcher and getting it or they're going to get a pig, they got a boar, they're going to go and hunt the boar and, and it's an, it's an amazing place. And I bring back just a full of gratitude and, 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 and just amazing humans. And yeah, I can't wait to go back and learn things and you look, you taste the wines and barrel bottles and whole bottles and you really see how they work in these crazy crazy steep vineyards and the wines are so well priced 
I mean, some of the best values in, in wine, Rivera Sacra, it's the amount of work goes in to produce a bottle of wine and yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, I guess I often wonder, I guess different winemakers probably think in different ways about how their wines are going to be consumed. Like, do you, do, do you take yourself to that moment where your end drinker is with their friends and family at the table? What kind of food do they have around the table? Do you think about that and like how much of that influences oh, yeah. your imagination with winemaking? Oh, 100%. Because like, and I got my cuttings from there. I went to the vineyard where I got the cuttings from. And, and then I opened a bottle and we, we had dinner together and they had brought, of course, they owned the best Rivera Sacra wines they produce. And, and they asked me if I brought a bottle. So I said, yes, I brought a bottle. So they opened it. So we, I opened a bottle of Armencia from Cambria among all these wines, which then it was like the biggest compliment. They're like, oh yeah, this tastes just like here. And so that's, I was like, wow, cool. It's at least tastes like, Tastes normal. It tastes like the varietal, and it, it didn't taste like the Mencia. Our Mencia from Fitner Farm tastes like a normal Mencia from somewhere. In, and we also we also have an amazing importer in Spain who who got a bunch of our wines. And and when I was there, he's, he was like proud to represent us because he has no, we are the only American producer he works with. And as he has all these amazing other producers from all over Spain. And so it was pretty, pretty amazing to be in that context, be in a shop and open a bottle of wine. And you see a bunch of people like, because every time you serve an American wine in Europe, you always feel like it's like, you know, funny. Why would someone want to have American wine in Europe? But everyone's interested. And, and it was, it was a really amazing trip to finish off in Barcelona with, with the wine. Yeah. Have you, when you're traveling there, are there the same concerns or what are some of the concerns, I guess, or, or things that people are excited about for 2024 in wine? Are, are people, are the trends the same? Are people talking about the same things on both sides in terms of winemakers and the wine industry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that the, the global issue are, are very similar. How dry everything is getting. And the drought is real in many parts of Europe. And then also, I think the one of the most important things is like, you know, how bud break is happening earlier and earlier. And then the frost, to be prepared for frost every year. And it's a real thing. It's, and that's the same problem everyone has. We have here. Everyone is like, you know, between when um, April comes around, everyone's like, all right, we are all on lockdown in April. Let me trying to find ways of how we'll protect our vineyards from frost. And I think that's the same conversation happening everywhere in the world is happening in, in, yeah, it's the same drought and frost. And yeah, no one, no one, no one, the thing is that, when you work with Mother Nature, you don't really have any, you don't have any, any way to combat that. It's just whatever comes your way, you got to just deal with it. So just get ready. And the conversation's the same everywhere. It might be a little nerdy for some of our audience, but can you share some of like the, the current ways of fighting frost in a vineyard? I feel like they haven't changed that much in the past 10, 15 years, yeah. but maybe there are some new things that I've, I've missed. So I'd love to hear about them. Yeah, I mean, 
the I mean, also remember that what we can do here in the U.S. is much different than what they can do in Europe. The easiest way to protect from frost is you have a sprinkler system. So when you have when temperature gets at, you know, you have to go just slightly above freezing, and you have to you have to put the sprinklers out. So when it does freeze, when it goes uh, below zero Celsius and it freezes, you have the the maybe the bud which has burst freeze so outside but not inside. So that's like one of the easy ways of doing it, but that's not permitted in most parts of the EU. You're not allowed to do it. Some places you can, but you have to get permission from from the local council. And and of course, the the one way that most people deal with frost is by burning a lot of 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 fires, like small, not lanterns, but like they have. It's, unfortunately, it's fossil fuels. It's like burning diesel or or some kind of oil, and they have a lot of it in between the vine rows. And so then there's the heat. It stays in the, in the top part by, the, by where, the, where the bud is. So it, it might maybe add a degree or a degree and a half, but not a whole lot of lots. So if, you're, if you go below zero Celsius, if you're at maybe one or negative two, you might be able to save it. But if it goes below, if it goes negative three or four, there's no way out. So that, that's the old school way of doing it. The sprinkler system is the modern way of doing it, but not permitted in most parts of. And then the the final way of, I mean, the other one way is is having a fan. So if you, but unfortunately, a lot of vineyards which are slopes and you can't really have a frost fan. So frost fan is like when you have the fan go and moves the air. So when it gets freezes, so you, again, you can probably you're fine if you're like. If you're at like again negative one, if it goes below negative two, it's just hard to to prevent it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, in theory, also being on the slopes helps because the cold air flows down into the into the bottom, whatever. But if it gets too cold, that doesn't. It only helps so much. Huh. Well, that that makes sense. And the reason I have to explain further for everybody that frost is an issue and early bud break is it'll get warm like really warm earlier in the year the plant will think it's time to grow it grows a little bit and then it gets cold again and then yeah. that's when the frost becomes an issue right yeah yeah well um, yeah yeah it's 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 because what happens is that and also certain varieties have bud break bud break early and and then they have growth and that's that's chardonnay is one of them so chardonnay is definitely the most so what people are doing and what even we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to prune already, but we won't prune then. I mean, we leave the cane long, so we'll only put it down and tie it in maybe the first week of May. Until then, we'll just let it, let it be. So just a way to delay, but interesting. Rate. Yeah, that's cool. You know, are there are there some techniques that you've been studying over the last couple of years that you're now implementing in 2024 in in your vineyard practices? I know we had talked last time about some stuff you were doing on the property, and just wondered if there's anything new that you were excited to try out or implement this year. Yeah, it's just been 
It's been the hard year we had last year, and this is an El Nino year. We have lots of rain, but it's also, it's not, it hasn't been a very cold. It's been, it's been mild during the day, and so the vines might start acting up faster. No, we just, I think we, I'm, not, I'm not sure we're changing too much, but we just, I mean, we bought a Monarch tractor to kind of use, so that's a new, new, New implement we're gonna we're gonna have, and the sprays are gonna still be the same, mostly compost teas and and plant based extracts and different things. Uh, we use very little sulfur in our in our sprays. We continue continue using just small amounts, and still think about using more holistic and plant based sprays to to keep to protect the plant and really. We just hired one person who's just going to help me, and he's just going to focus on soil health, and that's basically the job is just to make sure that we are we are measuring soil health, measuring our, our bacterial fungal counts, and measuring uh, you know what what we are, how healthy is the microbiome of the plant, and that's that's very important because I think the new vineyard we're planting, uh, you know, we're going to be measuring that four times a year to make sure that you're know, building organic matter and, and moving more towards a fungal dominant soil and that it's it's because once once you once the microbiome is strong and the the soil health is strong then diseases it's just like our body diseases won't impact as as easily unless if your soils were not in good shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you talk about that microbiome, is that stuff that you're adding directly to the soil or is it vegetation, other organic matter that you're developing around it and like in the ecosystem or is it like a combination of both? Yeah, not, not adding anything, anything out of the ordinary, just, just cover crop and, and if you're crimping or mowing and the inclusion of animals, having uh, chickens and sheep, rotating them through the vineyard and just fertilizing with 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 the plant base and and having the animals being a big part of the fertilization program. Yes, the just to let nature be itself and let it kind of cycle all the nutrients naturally the way it always has been and will be doing for with or without humans being on the planet. It's it's always going to rotate in the, in the same way and just allowing it to happen naturally. If if someone gets this is kind of an off the wall question, but if you had someone come to you who's not a winemaker, maybe is just into wine or interested in viticulture, came to you and said, "Hey, I want to plant a quarter acre of vines on my property." What would be like three or four things that you would say? Hey, make sure this is in place. Make sure you develop this kind of environment before you start planting, or like among the first four years. What would you say? It's just, I think it's simple to for the. I think soil prep first is first check the soil, make sure it's viable for 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 plant for for vines, and then you just prep the soil like any planting. Same thing you would do for planting a apple orchard, or, or and then you just prep it, and and that'll be you do a rip and you put compost and you cover crop it. It's like a garden. I mean, I I, yeah. I tell everyone if you're going to plant a vineyard, if it's a quarter acre. To if it's a seven acre vineyard, you have a, if you really want to be connected, you want to treat it like a garden. 
You mm-hmm. gotta spend time in it. You gotta really watch it. You gotta see how things are growing. You gotta use the you know, the, the right rootstock because because there's a lot of different people out there having different ideas and and the the things you're where you are. The rainfall is sparse these days. Sometimes a lot. Sometimes not enough. So you want to plant the right rootstock, and you want to because you only have one shot of planting it. So you want to really take advantage yeah. of using the right the right equipment and if you're going to irrigate or not irrigate. Like we are planting a vineyard right now, we are not irrigating, you're not putting any wires. It's going to be just a eight feet by eight feet, head-trained bush vine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we have to make some some decisions, important decisions, and and these decisions will, will impact whether these, this vineyard is going to have grapes and how it's going to grow. And so it, yep. uh, it's, it's someone... You have to really think of your vineyard as your garden. Unless you're planting a commercial vineyard, I guess it won't be three quarter of an acre then, but if it was <laughs> the hundred acre commercial vineyard, you can still do it in a very feasible way. And because I think that when the word sustainability comes up, it's sustainability for production, environmental, and financial. All three have mm-hmm. to come together to really have something sustainable. Do you already handpick all of your, your grapes? I guess the head trained ones, like you just had me thinking are going to yeah. have to be handpicked. Oh, everything. Yeah. We pick it ourselves too. We, we, yeah. This year we picked most of the grapes ourselves. Yeah. We had some crews to come help, but mostly a lot of us pick nice. us. That's so cool. So switching gears a little bit, I was just thinking, cause I've actually seen your, the Phelan farm wines on a, a number of, at least a couple wine lists down here in LA. How, with talking to your friends, I'm sure you have a lot from your former time as a sommelier and then being a part, club founding partner at BBG up in Santa Barbara. How have you heard about the hospitality industry for wine bouncing back on the on-premise since COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's been a roller coaster. I've heard and I've felt it also because a lot of my friends have been. I think I think during the I think the pandemic kind of of course stopped everything, and then it went after it. That it went up in a in a big way, and everything was really booming. And and then there was, of course, the the actors and the writers, all no, the, the the strikes and stuff. So definitely, in, especially in the LA area and San Francisco and California, is definitely didn't have the strongest. I heard not the strongest last quarter of of twenty three, and with with the economic strains and the, none of us know exactly how 24 is going to end up. So there's definitely, I think, I think there's there, I think it's, it's up in the air to see how, how the next three to six months really pan out. But I think hospitality, that's tough. California is the best place to live and, and to get staff. So I, that those, that thing, the other things I heard, I heard it was, it was, it's been slightly of a roller coaster of, of a few months, but yeah, I've, I've, I've been, haven't been out that much since before harvest. So I, I hopefully after I'm back my next trip, I'll check some stuff out. See what, see what's happening in, in the LA area. Yeah. Well, for sure. If you're, if you're down here doing anything or throwing any events, let me know. I'll stop by. Um, where where are you going on your next trips? Love to hear about that. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go to France for just a few days. Go to Burgundy and the Rhone. 
in four days. And then uh, a couple of market visits, go to London and to Stockholm and Oslo. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a blast. I wish I could just follow around and, and get your tips. Where do you, is there anywhere specific? Yeah. Or are you just yeah, meeting? Trying to, a... try to get some stuff done in the kind of off season right now. We started pruning a little bit early part of January and then took a little break for the, the moon cycle and then we'll get back at it early part of February. We have a little bottling and then, yeah, slowly prune our way through all the vineyards and it's time I can go away for a few weeks. But after, after, after April, it's, you know, can, can be gone for a long period of time. So, yeah. yeah that makes sense. I mean, we've been talking a decent uh, amount here in the first couple episodes of the year about both things that folks in the industry have been talking about, focusing on for 2024. Is there anything outside of your, um, of obviously focusing on regenerative, sustainable agriculture there at the, at your properties? Is there anything outside of that that you think that folks in the industry should have their eye on for 2024, whether that's in the market or with consumers, those kinds of things? Oh, I don't pay too much attention to any of that. I'm, I'm just more, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to, put my head down and kind of plant this new vineyard and get my vegetable garden all all squared away. So that's what my focus of 24 is. We'll have a new set of animals coming at, at the new vineyard and, and yeah, we have an acre of vegetables going to go in the ground. And yeah, no, it's just, it's just, that's my focus. I haven't thought too much outside of that. I got to get that done and, and hopefully end of the year early next year to redo the tasting room here in cambria and yeah that's just things i'm already like thinking mm -hmm. about january of 2025 yeah that's that's my yeah, focus you're, a, you're in the in the mindset of a true farmer it doesn't matter what's going on out there in the politics or in the industry or i mean you have you have work to do you have things to focus on so i appreciate yeah, that i think that's, that's not, a, actually yeah, not, probably the best advice for the year i, I, I live in cambria so it's it's, it's, it's quiet and there's not yeah that much action here you don't you don't see any rallies or demonstrations or no one's angry sure, right. everyone's just chilling and <laughs> if, I'm the, if i'm at the farm there's no phone service the internet anyway so it doesn't really matter yeah mm -hmm. I, I don't i mean this hours in, in as far as computer is rare for me i don't even spend an hour on a computer a day so yeah. nice I was going to say, I'm jealous of that. I spend way too much time in front of the <laughs> yeah. computer. That's for the uh, 12, 11 hours a day on the computer. <laughs> yeah. We, one thing while we, before we wrap up here, I just wanted to uh, thank you while we were still on the podcast for your recommendation. Last spring, we ended up going to Close St. Magdalene down in yeah, Cassis. Yeah. And it was, it was awesome. That was, it was, we got to see it both from the water, like looking up and then also like looking back down. They were replanting some vines, but it was still, so gorgeous. So thanks again for the, the recommendation oh, yeah, that's there. Great. It's totally worth it. That's amazing. Yeah. Great. But yeah, so that's, I mean, thanks again so much for joining as, as always, I could, I could pick your brain on, on everything, especially the, the viticulture side. I love it. And the, and the vinification side of things. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Thank you.
All right. And that was our interview with Raj Parr. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Go find some of his wines and we will be back with another episode next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars and ended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.